coming up next on Contemplate. Joy is something so much deeper and so much stronger than happiness. Because joy is something you can have when you're not happy. Joy is something that you can have continuously. Joy is, is this depth of seeing the beauty of the truth of Jesus Christ through Scripture, through what we see in nature. That's joy. Understanding it's going to be okay. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Oh, the joy that comes from knowing that. That's something that nothing can take away. When Stephen was martyred for his faith, the early church faced tough and real persecution, so much so that people had to literally run for their lives. So what did they do? And what does that mean for you and me today? Here's Pastor David. These people, uh, I want to be clear about what's going on here. They didn't flee because they were afraid to follow Christ. They fled because they were not going to deny Christ. And they knew that they would die or be thrown in prison if they stayed there. So it wasn't fear to follow Christ at all. They were going to follow Christ no matter what and recognize that in order to do that and stay healthy, they needed to be somewhere else at this moment. And so they go. They go, okay? Um, assumedly, any one of them could have just given up following Christ and said, no, I, I don't do that anymore. And these leaders would have left them alone and maybe even been happy to have them because they would have been counterpoints, right? Oh, this person used to follow Christ and now they deny their faith. So all they would have had to do to keep their stuff and to stay safe was just, assumedly, was just say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. But they didn't. They weren't going to do that. So because of that, they had to flee. They had to go away. And you may not have to flee to Samaria or Judea because the Pharisees are coming to get you. But what if God asks you to move to Honduras or to Woodland or to get a new job or to go into ministry full time? Right? Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Are you looking to follow him anywhere, hoping that he will give you a tough task that you might do his work? That you might store up for yourselves rewards and relationship with him? Or are you hoping that he'll ignore you and you can stay where you are and keep all your stuff? And think about where you are and where your heart is. And remember this little tidbit. When the teacher is going to call on somebody, the person who's trying not to make eye contact is always the person who gets called on, right? You know how that works. You know you didn't read the stuff the night before, and the teacher's looking to ask a question, you're just like, you know, whatever. Don't do that with Christ. Say, here I am. Here I am. He's not going to, it's not a way for him to, uh, he's not looking to do things that are difficult for you for the sake of doing things that are difficult. He may call you to something tough, but it'll be glory. It'll be amazing. Okay. So, um, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. They didn't go and just run. They went everywhere preaching the word. They were missionaries. They weren't complaining about losing their stuff in their houses. That's not what we read. That they're frustrated and complaining. No, they go out seeing this as an opportunity to spread the gospel to other places. That's what all these people who are running for their lives are doing. They went to these places and preached the gospel, the good news. 
The good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that you can have forgiveness of sins, that you can have a relationship with the Messiah, the creator of the universe. That was what they went saying. Not, can you believe what happened to me? I joined this religion. They took all my stuff and threatened to kill me. That's not what was going on. That's not what was going on. They wanted to preach Christ. So look at what is happening here, okay? Let's go back to earlier in this where Jesus told them something. He said, Jerusalem, and then Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I think they had been a couple years in Jerusalem. They hadn't gone to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. But look what happens. Now they do. Why? Because they had to. They were forced to, right? We look at the death of Stephen, and it seems like a tragedy, right? And in, in some ways it was. Certainly it probably hurt, right? And for those who loved Stephen, it was probably very painful, to see his death, but it was his death that began this persecution. It was this persecution that led the people to get up and leave Jerusalem and continue to follow Christ's command to go to Judea and Samaria. These are the places that we just read that they went to, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And it's because of Stephen's death and the church moving out that I and some of you are followers of Christ. So you can look at Stephen's death and feel really sad, or you can look at Stephen's death and say, ah, the Lord is sovereign. He does know what's going on. Stephen's cool. He's in heaven. He got to have Jesus stand up and watch. His reward is great. Okay, he's good. Don't, don't be sad for Stephen. He's doing all right. And you can know Christ because his death caused persecution, which also seems like a really bad thing, except that it forced the church to go do what Jesus had called them to do in the first place. So out they go. The people go with a strong mission. They're proclaiming Jesus. They, they, they're moved from the one place, and what do they see? An opportunity. First thing they see is an opportunity to preach the gospel. Do you see opportunities that way? Is that how you see opportunities when you get a new job or you move to a new town or you join a new club or you, or you meet a new friend or you go to a new neighborhood or join a new PTA or whatever it is, okay? Do you go with a mission mindset? Hey, this is an opportunity for me to have new relationships with new people who I can tell about Jesus. Is that what you, is that, is that, does that come in your mind? I know it doesn't always with me. Come into my mind immediately, oh, God's done this thing. He sent me to this new coffee shop or whatever. Now, hey, there's new people who I can tell about Jesus. But that's how they were. That's how they were. They recognized the plan and the sovereignty of God enough to understand that when there's a new situation, even though it's coming out of persecution, when there's a new situation, it's a new opportunity. And they didn't lose the chance. They didn't lose the chance to talk about what Jesus had done in their lives. And we shouldn't either. When God gives us new opportunities, we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse five. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Okay, so this can be read the city of Samaria or a city of Samaria. Um, both readings are possible based on the Greek there. So we don't know for sure which city. It's possible that he would have gone to the same city where Jesus had been in John four, um, where they would have already had some understanding of the gospel, right? Uh, but, but let's look at Philip for a minute. Philip was one of these guys. Remember a couple times ago, we talked about these deacons, right, that were named. There were seven guys. One of them's already dead. 
That's Stephen. Philip's another one, both of whom are likely Hellenistic Jews. These are Greek names that they have. So Philip's going, again, sort of helps with the theory that it was the Hellenistic Jews that were being persecuted because we see the Stephen, a Hellenistic Jew, who's going and is the one in Samaria's preaching. But I just want you to see that there, once again, as we think about deacons and elders and these different roles in the church, that being a deacon is a lot more than what we refer to as serving tables or doing administrative work. Stephen is now going and getting to be this guy who goes into the city and preaches the gospel, which is a huge, huge honor. But I also want to to look at this from a different perspective. I want us to see um, the process, the process. So long before Stephen was in a position for the people of the church to lift him up and say, here's someone with a great reputation and all of these things. There were all kinds of little things that he had had to be doing to serve God. Little things that so many people find unimportant. And yet they were the things that he had to do to be serving to get where he was. And that's true for all of us. And then even as a deacon, when he was first a deacon, there was probably all kinds of little administrative things that seemed like they were unimportant to him at the time, or they seemed unimportant. And I've talked to us a lot about what it means to be the body of Christ and how all of us have work to do and how all of it is important. His preaching to these Sumerians is no less important than what he was doing when he was just, you know, dividing out the stuff that was going to the widows. It's no different. But God does give him this opportunity after this opportunity after this opportunity. And we, as people, I I see this, uh, I don't know if it's American or Western, or what it is, but we have this sort of thing where we sort of get ahead of ourselves sometimes and don't want to put in the, the tough stuff before we get to have the opportunities that originally we wanted, right? So Stephen, who we read last time, and then Philip this time, Stephen, well, technically Stephen got to die, so I guess that's not a great way to recruit deacons. Deacons die first is the motto, um, so <laughs> sign up. Um, but Stephen got to do something amazing that we still talk about to this day. And Philip is now getting to do something amazing because he put in the time. I'll tell you this. I spent a lot of time, um, watching two-year-olds in children's church. I spent a lot of time setting up tables and chairs and doing all of the, all of the things that need to be done in the church. Uh, a lot of different little administrative tasks and whatever before the first time I ever had the opportunity to teach the Word of God long before I ever had that opportunity. And all of us need to understand the process, the process of growing in the kingdom of God. Oh, you don't elevate somebody too quickly or you're going to have problems, right? We have, a lot of people talk about millennials, okay? I didn't want to offend anybody, but people talk about how millennials sort of think that they should sort of already be here, even though they haven't done all the stuff down here. And they've said that about every generation of young people who's come around for as long as history, probably. Now, it happens to be true about millennials, but no, I'm just, I'm sort of kidding. Um, Here's the thing. What's frustrating about that, the thing that frustrates people about young people in every generation is that they tend to think that they should be somewhere where they're not yet. And I just want us to, as we see what happens, as we see the progression with these deacons, I think it's a good place to point out that it starts with being faithful in small things, and then we get the bigger things, right? And so we see in Matthew 25, 22 through 23, it says, 
He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So I'm, I'm, I'm just simply making the point about what we've seen with Stephen and Philip, these guys who have gotten to do these great things in the Lord, that it didn't start there. They didn't become Christians, and the next day they were doing these things. That there was a process that they went through. And you don't elevate too quickly because people who get elevated too quickly think that leadership is about being served, but leadership is about service. And it starts with doing the small things, right? It starts with doing the small things. And we all need to be stepping up to do those things. So let's read verse 6. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles, which he did. Here we see one accord again. It's amazing how Christ brings unity wherever his message is preached. One accord, right? They see what he's done. They see this preaching um, and what Philip is doing. And with one accord, they're listening to him and, and being very attentive to that gospel message. But I want you to realize something that you can miss here. We've talked about it a little bit before, but let's talk about it for a minute really quick, even though I'm running low on time. The Samaritans, these people, these are not people that the Jews like, okay? These are people that the Jews really, really don't like, okay? They don't like them at all. Um, they have basically a mutual hate, okay? The Samaritans hate the Jews. The Jews hate the Samaritans. You can just imagine how the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are feeling as they find out that Samaritans are coming to know Christ. They're hated you know, half-brethren, as they would put it. Um, so in John 4, 9, we read that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They, they, they will not get with each other on anything. They do not like each other. Um, so I'm just going to give you a really quick thing on the, who the Samaritans are so you understand who they are and what's going on here. Um, the Samaritans viewed themselves as Israelites, as remnants of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. That's who the Samaritans viewed themselves as. They, they believed in the Torah. Okay, that's the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, they believed that was Holy Scripture. They kept circumcision, observed the Sabbath, and they honored Moses as the greatest of the prophets. That's, that's who they are. That's who they view themselves as. That's who these folks are. Now, the Jewish view on the Samaritans is this. They saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, okay? They're descendants of Mesopotamian Gentiles, and Jewish people that were there in the, Samaria, in the area of Samaria after the exile in the 8th century BC. That's who they see these folks as. They're, they've interbred. There's no purity with them. Okay, They're no better than Gentiles. In fact, in some ways, probably worse because they think that they're Jews. Okay, So the Jewish people really don't like them. The Samaritans also reject temple worship in Jerusalem and built their own temple in Mount Gerizim. And uh, they rejected all of the Old Testament except for those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, those are the only ones that they agree with or believe are Scripture. Okay? And then the hostility between these groups got much worse when a guy named John Hyrcanus, Hyrcanus um, who was a Jewish freedom fighter, destroyed their temple in 107 BC, and he actually destroyed and ravaged many of their cities. So this is not a history that has made buddies between the Samaritans and the Jews. So these Jews, you need to understand that as these Jewish people are fleeing into Samaria, it's not like, hey, brother, how are you doing? That's not what's going on. So when we see these Samaritans coming to follow Christ by the word of these Jewish people, this is an act of God. 
This is the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, anytime anyone comes to follow Jesus, it's an act of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. But this definitely was, okay? These guys came only because the power of the Holy Spirit was at work because they rejected these Jews. And these Jews going to them is also the power of the Holy Spirit because they rejected the Samaritans, okay? Um, we know that Jesus had been in a city called Sychar in Samaria. He had talked to, you may remember the story in John 4, 1 through 26, something like that, the woman at the well. And this was a Samaritan woman, and he, had, he revealed to her that he was the Messiah. They understood or they believed in the prophecy that we talked about last week that Moses gave, where he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. That prophecy about the Messiah, they believed in that. So they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. And, uh, and when Jesus came and revealed himself as the Messiah, there actually were a bunch of people who he got to minister to there. So there was some openness to Jesus in at least that city in Samaria. Okay? The reason they didn't look to all the other prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament is because they only believed in the first five books. So that was the only prophecy or... There are other prophecies about Jesus in those first five books, but that's the one that they look to as there's going to be a Messiah that's coming. All right. Verse seven. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Um, here's all I really want to say about that. Okay. Um, we see this a lot in the first century. We see Jesus casting out evil spirits, unclean spirits regularly. Here we see Philip the deacon casting out evil spirits. And some of us look on that and we try to sort of explain it away like, What's, what are all these evil spirits doing around? All these people running around possessed and so on and so forth. Don't kid yourself. It still exists, okay? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, okay? Against evil spirits. There really are evil spirits. There really are people who are still oppressed or possessed by evil spirits. And if you hang out long enough, I know this isn't a great way to recruit either, but you may get a chance to see what real spiritual warfare looks like, what the real power of darkness looks like, and what the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ looks like when it comes up against that, which is full conquering. But it is real. Don't kid yourself. And it's not just a physical healing. He actually separates and talks about physical healing also, right? He says that these people were physically healed, and these people, evil spirits, right? Unclean spirits were cast out. So that's what's going on there. And let's look at the last verse. And there was great joy in that city. There was great joy. Okay, John Piper defines the type of joy that Paul talked about in his letters, which would be the type of joy that Luke, Paul's friend, would be talking about here. He defines it this way. He says, joy is a good feeling or emotion in the soul, not in the body, in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit, because we know joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, okay, causing you to see the beauty of Jesus Christ in his word and in the world. Joy is something so much deeper and so much stronger than happiness because joy is something you can have when you're not happy. Joy is something that you can have continuously. Joy is, is this depth of seeing the beauty of the truth of Jesus Christ through Scripture, through what we see in nature. That's joy. Understanding it's going to be okay. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Oh, the joy. That comes from knowing that. That's something that nothing can take away. If you truly have that, the Holy Spirit's given you true joy, you can be the saddest that you've ever been and still have that joy in knowing what the future holds, your relationship with the Lord. So that's what they got. Not, and everybody was really happy. 
that people were healed. It doesn't say that. It said, and joy. That was what happened when the gospel was preached to Samaria. When it gets out, Stephen dies, persecution comes, the gospel finally gets out, and the reaction of the people is joy. They have joy. So why are we studying this passage right now? God has a plan, okay? I'm just going to let you in on something. God has a plan, okay? And we can see it really well when we look backwards, but he's also prophesied it going forwards. And he has a plan not just for everything that we've seen that happens in Scripture, and that's going to happen, but for you individually and for this church. And it was about a year ago, almost a year ago, the elders agreed that we should go through the book of Acts. And at the time, we had our reasons why we felt like the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was leading us to do that. But we didn't plan where we'd be at each time, where, what, what section we'd be in. As a fact, I'm probably going a lot slower than people would prefer, although I got a lot done last week, okay? So give me a break. But we didn't know where we'd be. But here we are, here we are studying about how the church was doing well, things were going well, but because of forces outside of themselves, they were forced to move. And he's telling us what that should look like. We're being prepared for a work of God. I have seen this over and over when, there's been, when there have been certain kinds of issues, and then we go right through that in Acts. And, and here we see, we were learning how to be the church. We were a new church, learning how to be the church. And now we see that God moves his people, and he's showing us what that looks like and what the result is. Because he's preparing us. He's stretching us. He's getting us ready for what comes next for us. That's what he's doing, okay? And we better be ready and prepared to be like these folks. And what have they shown us today? That we got to be ready to follow him no matter what it costs. That that's where our heart has to be. I'm not saying God's going to make you give up everything and you should go sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. I'm not saying that, okay? Take care of your family. Take care of your kids. God's giving you uh, money. Yes, take care of the poor too and tithe, and give to the church, and do all the things that you ought to be doing. But I'm not saying go sell all your stuff, or leave your family, or show that you're so dedicated. I'm saying your heart needs to be willing that if he called you to do that, you would do it. That's the attitude that we have to have. That's the attitude that they had as they move forward. And we have to be going out and looking for opportunities to preach the word, to speak the truth, to give an answer for the hope that lies within we're commanded to do that. That's why we're in here learning and studying. You've got to be, when you go out, when you leave this place today, and you, you need to be here, like I said, every week so we can end strong, finish strong, and start strong. But you need to be going to people saying, hey, Acts Church, something really exciting is happening. I want you to be there. Will you come? I'll pick you up. We'll go out to lunch afterwards. You need to bring people so, because this church isn't just for you. It's for all those people who God is going to call to this place so that they too can grow to know him and have incredible relationship with him, okay? Our job is to go get them. So start inviting them. Start seeing what God is doing here, recognizing it for what it is, and getting excited about it. So what is God calling you to do for him? important things to think about. And if you find yourself kind of on the outside looking in at all this and want that joy that Pastor David talked about today, come see us at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington. We'd love to help you find it. Get easy directions at axechurchnw.org or call us at 360-885-9000. 
Hope to meet you this Sunday. Well, that's it for today, and there's much more in our next episode with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.